WHMP. Welcome to this hour of Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we are joined by Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. And we are particularly pleased to be able to speak to Max today because we want to note that this, these last 30 days, have been the 30th anniversary of the Educational Reform Act, which had enormous consequences across the country and here in Massachusetts, and we would really appreciate Max Page's perspective on that. Max, pa- Max Page, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being with us. We have just celebrated, nope, that's the wrong word, we have just observed the 30th anniversary of the Educational Reform Act. I would appreciate your perspective on what it did to the country, what it did to yeah. education in Massachusetts, and frankly, not to be too uh, didactic about this, but, well, how are, you, how are we recovering from it? Max, give us a bit of a history lesson. Bring us up to date. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. Good morning, Buzz. Um, let's see. It's actually the, the official anniversary of this so-called Education Reform Act of 1993 was actually late June. But this whole summer has been a series of kind of reflections um, by various stakeholders who were there or not there um, about what was the impact, what is the ongoing impact of that important law. And many of them are getting it all wrong and, and intentionally so. But I should maybe step back and explain what that what this is. The 1993 Ed Reform Act is did several things. One is it um, infused, it made a commitment of the, the legislature ongoing to infuse a lot more money into public schools in Massachusetts. Okay, that's one that, good thing. That, one good thing in its favor, right? Yes, indeed. Okay. Um, it also created the MCAS test, um, which was at first for 10 years diagnostic, but then became high stakes in the sense that it had to be a graduation requirement. This obviously is something that the MTA is opposed to, and we are working hard to undo that. Only eight states have that MCAS as a graduate, have a state test as a graduation requirement. Um, the th- third thing is it, is it uh, had us, led us towards um, the charter schools, so which obviously we have been battling as um, what were intended to be kind of labs of innovation, have become a sort of a separate, a parallel system that draws money away from public schools. And the biggest battle over this, of course, was question two in 2016 that would have really opened up the number of charter schools dramatically and I think would have led to the of privatization of public education in Massachusetts. So there's some important things. There's a there's some there's multiple things in there um, established, of course, um, or reaffirmed the importance of our state standards. I think many people, including us, think that's invaluable. But the issue, Bill, is that there are those um, who are who are so invested in the testing and accountability regime and in charter schools that they are. I think mistelling the narrative completely. And I'm a historian when I'm not the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. And so I'm very keen on and concerned uh, when false narratives get, uh, false narratives of history get told. Max Page, I want to talk to you at some length about that. But first, I would appreciate it if you would go back even a bit further in this history 
and explain what the motivation was on the federal level for the Education Reform Act of 1993. It was not ill-intended. Uh, it wasn't pernicious. It had a good objective. It just got the uh, uh, manner of remedying the problem all wrong. So take well, us back. Let me back. be clear, Bill. This is the Ed Reform Act of Massachusetts. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Right, well, right, right. But it uh, was prompted by the federal law. I'm sorry. My yeah, mistake. that's right. Well, here's actually an important point. One of the key parts of the narrative that um, is that some are getting wrong, including the the uh, August Boston Globe, which I put in quotes, um, which is that really this was the product of a lawsuit, a series of lawsuits. The the one that was that actually was was uh, lifted up by the state, the the, the Supreme Judicial Court in Massachusetts, is it was so called McDuffie case. And that speaks to the history that you're asking about, Bill, because essentially a group of organizations, including the Massachusetts Teachers Association, League of Women Voters, a, a number of groups filed this lawsuit to say that public education was, was, was funded highly unequally in Massachusetts, that, it, that we are, were not honoring our constitution, which has a beautiful series of passages written by John Adams about cherishing public schools in every city and town in the Commonwealth, and that every it, it implies, suggests that everyone has access to a fair, a, an adequately funded public education, and that was not happening. And the McDuffie case made that, made that uh, case, and in fact, the McDuffie case was decided just days before the legislature passed the Education Reform Act. In other words, they were both racing to this conclusion. The legislature did not want the court to tell it what to do. So it was, but it could tell the writing was on the wall. And so they were quickly trying to develop this legislation. So really we have two anniversaries. The McDuffie case, which is, comes from a series of community groups, plaintiffs, meaning families, students in districts across the Commonwealth, including one McDuffie, um, and, then, um, and then the court deciding and then the, the court deciding that, in fact, we did have an un unconstitutional system of public education funding. So that's a first important point. Where did this come from? It really came from deep inequality and a series of individuals and organizations like ours saying, filing a lawsuit, demanding fundamental change to the way our public schools were funded. I think it's important to note that McDuffie was very clear that the system of financing public education in Massachusetts had resulted in a deeply unfair system that was uh, embedded and infused with inequality. McDuffie says that, but what McDuffie doesn't do is prescribe how to fix it, how to make the system exactly. fair, how to make uh, school systems in uh, disadvantaged and underserved uh, communities, how to make them equal to in, the, in their quality, how to make those schools equal in their quality to more affluent communities. McDuffie doesn't solve, didn't solve that problem. And so it that's be, correct. And so the legislature then took it on. Is that a fair summary? That's a fair summary. I think the legislature was worried that, in fact, the court would make a very um, specific set of requirements and the legislature wanted to own it. And what they what they did was create this system that has now long been debated, and this is sort of the fundamental part of the, the debate, 
is they said a lot more money will come in to the to the to the schools schools across the Commonwealth, and there will be so-called accountability of the MCAS test to show that the money is working, and um, and there will be these uh, charter schools. Now and I should say that the um, the legislature in 2010 in the Achievement Gap Act up the stakes of our MCAS and accountability system. That's where they went in. They allowed for, for instance, receivership, taking over districts like like Holyoke nearby and Southbridge and Lawrence. Those are districts now controlled by the state. That is a result of the 2010 Act that built upon the Ed Reform Act. Max, I would like to put this in the context for a moment of the national debate that was going on uh, 30 years ago and has gone on ever since. And that is about these tests. And the standardized test was a significant feature of the effects of the No Child Left Behind law, the federal law. And Massachusetts and most states went along with it for a while Massachusetts is now one of eight states that still retains uh, a standardized test as a graduation requirement. What did we get wrong initially, and why does Massachusetts still retain this test when 42 other states don't? Well, so that's, I think, at the heart of the debate. And there was a recent uh, piece by some of the, the secretaries of education and commissioners who were in charge, who were uh, in charge over the past 20 years, uh, as well as one business leader writing this piece together and arguing that it was all about this accountability system that has advanced our schools. And it's simply false. <laughs> um, that, you know, if you look simply at the, if you look at something like the NAEP scores, NAEP, N-A-E-P, is sort of the nation's report card because it's not run by any state, it's run by a consortium, they drop in, they test a certain number of kids across the state, across different school districts. It's like a temperature check, and it's understood to be, um, while it's limited on a certain number of subjects, it's understood to be a test that you can, you can use to compare where we are overall. And what you see is as money flowed into schools in the wake of the Ed Reform Act and the McDuffie lawsuit, that you saw dramatic in improvements across the board, still enormous gaps between white and Asian students and black and Latino, but growth, steady growth um, for all groups over the next 10, 15 years. That was with, that was even, but that was before the MCAS became a state requirement. That took, that took place in 2003, 10 years after the start of, of the, um, the Ed Reform Act. In other words, as money flowed in, test scores improved. Lots of other things improved as well. Obviously, I don't believe test scores are the one and only measure. What you see, though, as when money started to level off or even decline in the years after late 2007, 2008, and then all the way through the, the teens, um, you see those scores begin to decline. Max, and stop, stop, there you, for, stop there for a second. Yes. I, I just want to identify what money does. Money for more teachers, money for more teachers' aides, money for more uh, uh, support staff. What is the money used for they, that made the test what scores? What created better? with the Ed Reform Act is a formula 
by which the state would fund districts, especially the neediest districts, and it would cover everything. It would cover hiring staff, um, teachers, education support professionals, everyone, and provide more funds so that they could be paid better so that you could attract people. It, uh, it provided money for the programs and services, all kinds of things. There's a whole formula that covers a range of, um, of needs in the public schools, but essentially, it is money directed to the schools that they can use as they want. In other words, it has a formula for which by which it's calculated how much each district gets, but really then they use it as needed. And of course, needier districts get more money um, and wealthier districts get less from the state, although everyone gets at least 17.5%. Uh, this was the negotiation that even the wealthiest districts get it. So everyone is into what's called Chapter 70 funding formula but i really want to emphasize this that it was the infusion of funds dramatic infusion over a good number of years 10 years or so they steadily increased the funds this was the core that does not mean that what was happening in the classroom didn't matter it didn't doesn't mean that perhaps academic standards played a valuable role but the story that is told by the so-called ed reformers even to this day is that money played no role and one of the most durable facts in research on education that is that money is a crucial, crucial, the, perhaps the most important ingredient, at, at least above, at least uh, um, just below, I would say, the, the, the income and demographics of the families. Remember, schools cannot solve so, so society's fundable mental inequities, but in improving schools, money is the crucial ingredient and that's why we fought so hard in 2019, that is the MTA passed, helped pass the Student Opportunity Act, which updated the funding formula. Because as I mentioned, money went up dramatically and then leveled off over the past, the decade before 2019. And there was a lot of efforts, there was even another lawsuit to say we have to do better, this funding has lagged. And we finally won this very progressive $1.5 billion increase to our public schools um, across the state. We're speaking with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back, and I have the question, where does Massachusetts rate and rank compared to the other states in terms of its public education systems? We'll be right back. Your love give me such a thrill, but your love don't pay my More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What do you take to the beach? A book. Go to Broadside, get a beach read. Like Happy Place by Emily Henry. Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Have you read Lessons in Chemistry? Read it by the water. Broadside Bookshop Summer Reads for the beach or a lazy afternoon in an Adirondack. Stacey Abrams' new thriller is Rogue Justice and you won't be able to put it down except maybe for a quick dip to cool off. Broadside, Northampton's community bookstore. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered to your door or pick up at the store. What's new at the Waitley Inn? Everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit WaitleyInn.com. 
Eat greatly at the Waitley. At the Black Sheep in Amherst, they're still baking and cooking from scratch, just like they have for almost four decades. Did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? Let the Black Sheep Deli help you finally celebrate this summer. You deserve it. Treat your guests to their wonderful appetizers, entrees, baked goods, and luscious desserts. No need to do all the work yourself. Let the Black Sheep Deli help you make your party a success with less stress. The Black Sheep Deli, open seven days a week and still having fun with food since 1986. This week's Shock Tuesday is Tavern on the Hill. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Tavern on the Hill releases gift certificates for their restaurant on Mount Tom. Tavern on the Hill, barbecue done slow over native oak, brisket, ribs, and pulled pork, plus Tavern's signature salmon, pumpkin tortillaki, and big deck with a view of the Berkshire foothills. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Tavern on the Hill on Mount Tom, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. We continue our conversation with Max Page. He is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. We call this segment Your State You, although, of course, Max, as the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, speaks for educators, public educators across the Commonwealth, K through 12, and in higher education as well. Max Page, we were talking, we continued our conversation during the break, and you made the point that, and I think I'm quoting you correctly, there's no getting rid of MCAS. Explain that for a minute, if you would, please. Well, what what I was saying is that um, the, the federal, various federal laws, race at the top and so on, um, have required that there be an annual test from um, grades three and up through 10th grade. So the MCAS fulfills that, and, what it what and th therefore even if we uh, get rid of the graduation requirement or we pass the Thrive Act, which would get which would do several things about accountability, there would still be the test because that is still required by federal law to be have this test. But we are only eight, uh, one of eight states, as you mentioned at the start of the segment, Bill, that uh, uh, require the state test as a graduation requirement. There used to be more than half of states. Uh, were there, but they all have withdrawn that in their states. So we're down to eight states, and they are not the best states. They include Montana and Alabama and a few other places. We're not like an august company um, in retaining this, but it has become a, a false narrative of the ed reform types. I mean, like Democrats for ed reform, all these other groups that are funded by the Walton Foundation, the Koch brothers and the like. That their their narrative has become that it is the MCAS as a graduation requirement that has lifted our schools, and the evidence is simply not there. Okay, so that we have about, we just have a minute or two left, but I would yes. really want to know the answer to this question: Where does Massachusetts rank? Whatever the, the the system for rating is, where does Massachusetts rank in terms of the quality of our public schools? So I'm going to give you, as you sometimes say, Bill, the good news and the bad news. I mean, the good news is that is that we have um, we are near our students are near or at the top every single year in terms of these NAEP tests, this te the number of these national diagnostic tests that come through. We have consistently been at near or near the top um, for the past, you know, couple, you know, decade and a half or more. Uh, the downside, the negative is. 
that um, going back all these when I was on the student on the school committee in Amherst, Massachusetts in 1983 and four is the gap between the wealthiest districts and the poorest districts is as large as anywhere. And that's disturbing that we have, while we saw a dramatic improvement of students of color and working class students in terms of their, their graduation rates, as well as um, the, the NAEP scores, that in fact, the gap has, has been fairly durable. And that's really, really concerning. Uh, so that's our challenge for the coming years. I think, and that is uh, what we have not yet fulfilled. And that's that's just a really troubling point to reckon with in Massachusetts. We have the best system overall, but we also have a very highly unequal one. Okay, last question. What's the remedy? What does the legislature need to do to remedy the inequality? Well, I think they need to fulfill the, the, the funding, um, which is what the Student Opportunity Act was a seven year rollout. I think this year will be year four of kind of steadily increasing funds, especially for the neediest districts. And they, the legislature has been committed to that, which is terrific. The pandemic brought new needs and we have been advocating that some parts of the, the fund, the fair share amendment, the millionaires tax revenues that we won last fall should go to increasing funds um, in districts, especially around behavioral, mental health, and other issues that are just, have become a real crisis um, in public schools, not just in Massachusetts, but all across the country. And we also think we have to end this graduation requirement. We have to end the way that the MCAS distorts um, and distorts the curriculum to focus on uh, test taking, especially in districts that are not doing as well. They make an overemphasis on the test taking. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Max Page. He is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Thank you, Max, for your insights and for your leadership. Thank you so much. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Governor Maura Haley was in Western Mass yesterday, including a stop at Mountain View Farm in East Hampton, to announce the launch of a new fund to help farmers following the devastating flooding. We wanted to find a way to come together, provide direct aid to our farmers. The Massachusetts Farm Resilience Fund is designed to help farms facing financial losses across the state. All money that comes to the fund will be distributed rapidly by the United Way through a deliberate selection process. Senator Joe Comerford was president in East Hampton at Mountain View Farm yesterday when the Healy Driscoll administration made their announcement. The Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources estimates at least 75 farms have been hurt by flooding, with about 2,000 acres in crop losses at a minimum value of $15 million. That number will likely climb as more damage is assessed and the longer-term impact sets in. Musanti Beach is back open after Northampton Parks and Rec closed it last week as a result of flooding. Flooding damaged swimming area ropes and buoys, but it's now all fixed. Officials in Northampton are still warning residents that the water level is high. Police are investigating after a rollover crash in Palmer that left one person injured. The single motor vehicle accident occurred last night on I-90 westbound. 
Crews were able to remove the driver who was trapped in the vehicle and was transported to a local hospital. No word yet on the extent of injuries at this time. Mostly cloudy today, chance for showers in the morning, showers and thunderstorms likely this afternoon. Flooding and damaging winds are a possibility today, a high of 76 to 80. Evening showers and thunderstorms and partial clearing overnight, a low of 60 to 66. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, a high of 80 to 84, mid-80s, mostly sunny on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La Corte Suprema de Estados Unidos tendría que cumplir con estándares de ética más estrictos según la legislación aprobada el jueves por el Comité Judicial del Senado, en respuesta a las recientes revelaciones sobre viajes de jueces financiados por donantes. El proyecto de ley enfrentó la oposición unida de los republicanos, quienes dijeron que podría destruir la Corte. El panel votó según las líneas partidarias para establecer reglas de ética para la Corte y un proceso para hacerlas cumplir, incluidos nuevos estándares de transparencia en torno a recusaciones, obsequios y posibles conflictos de intereses. Los demócratas impulsaron la legislación por primera vez después de los informes a principios de este año de que el juez Clarence Thomas participó en vacaciones de lujo y en un acuerdo inmobiliario con un importante donante republicano, y después de que el presidente del Tribunal Supremo John Roberts se negara a testificar ante el Comité sobre la Ética de la Corte. Desde entonces, los informes noticiosos también revelaron que el juez Samuel Alito se había tomado unas vacaciones de lujo con un donante republicano, y la prensa asociada informó la semana pasada que la jueza Sonia Sotomayor, con la ayuda de su personal, ha adelantado las ventas de sus libros a través de visitas a universidades durante la última década. El presidente del Comité Judicial del Senado, Dick Durbin, dijo que la legislación sería un primer paso crucial para restaurar la confianza en la Corte. Dijo que si alguno de los senadores sentados en la sala se hubiera involucrado en actividades similares, estaría violando las reglas de ética. La legislación de ética tiene pocas posibilidades de ser aprobada en el Senado o en la Cámara de Representantes controlada por los republicanos, pero los demócratas dicen que la avalancha de revelaciones significa que son necesarios estándares exigibles en la Corte. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We'd like to note the passing of Al Giordano. This in the Greenfield Recorder. Let me read to you and share with you a bit. From fighting against nuclear power plants to fighting for elected officials, Al Giordano was known for his love of stirring things up while his work went to much larger arenas, with Giordano ultimately being known internationally for his journalism and organizing efforts, his beginnings and much of his training can be traced back to western Massachusetts, where he was given the stage from 1978 to the early 1990s to make change. Al Giordano was 64. He died of lung cancer on July 10th on his home in Mexico. There are quotes in this article in the Greenfield Recorder from my law partner, Tom Lesser. Quote, here's one of them. He was not one to think about how terrible it was. He thought it only meant you organize harder, you work harder. That was the lesson he taught with his life, and it began in Franklin County. 
Lesser explained that Giordano drew a d distinction between being an activist and being an organizer. He felt that activists spoke with people they agreed with. Goes on to say, organizers find common ground with everyone they can. Al Giordano was indeed a fighter and an organizer and an extraordinary journalist. And he was known throughout Western Massachusetts and the country for his work, his work around the uh, fight against the twin nuclear power plants in Montague was really quite extraordinary. He organized local efforts to shut down Yankee Row as well, uh, which happened in 1992. And here's another quote. This is from Doug Wilson, uh, president, retired president of the Row Center. He energized and led the movement to close down Yankee Row, said Doug Wilson. Giordano was known for the values he had and the values he espoused, and his journalism was a reflection of who he was, and his journalism was important. In fact, it was transformative here in Western Massachusetts. Buzz, do you know Al? Sure, I knew Al. Yeah, I had nothing but respect for Al. He was uh, just a, um, uh, a force in Franklin County when our offices were in Greenfield and Orange, and he was tireless in his... Um, Willingness. I, I think that the comment that you just, the quote that you just uh, uh, read is really appropriate. He didn't like the idea of being a, an activist. He wanted to be thought of as an organizer, somebody who didn't just complain about things. He, somebody who tried to get other people to rally uh, so that it was everything was a grassroots expression of what the world should look like rather than what it uh, is forced to look like. I will also point out on Tuesday, Wesley Blix, who was longtime reporter for uh, the Union News um, and has written books himself and was a friend of Al Giordano. Uh, on Tuesday, he will be on Talk to Talk to talk about Al Giordano and his contributions to this region and the, uh, the issues which Al brought to our attention. He also, I just want to point out, Al Giordano was incredibly articulate in breaking down and describing how we got to where we got in a variety of different uh, arenas, including nuclear energy. Um, so Al, he died far too young, and uh, it is a loss, um, and we should be reflecting on his contributions to this region. A couple of things more on Al Giordano. Uh, he wrote and identified issues early. Uh, he was one of the earliest identifiers and largest players in having Barack Obama elected president. Indeed, he was very important in that effort. Um, and he wrote for, of course, the Valley Advocate. He wrote for uh, national publications as well. He was quite extraordinary. We are joined now by uh, Lindsay Sabadosa, State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, representative from the 1st Hampshire District. Representative Sabadosa, thank you for being with us. We were just talking about Al Giordano, who, well, may have predated you just a bit in terms of political activism here in the Valley. I, do you know of or did you know Al Giordano, who passed recently? I did not, no. I am, well, for those of us of a certain age, he is memorable, and we will hold Representative, him. you just made me feel so old. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, it's really not your fault. It just happens. <laughs> it just happens. That's right. So, Representative Sapodosa, uh, I would appreciate your sharing with us your thoughts about 
the recent floods. It's another torrential rainstorm predicted for today. It seems to be never-ending. I'd like to know what you feel needs to be done and perhaps a bit of a retrospective and a prospective of how this is affecting your district, the 1st Hampshire District, and the city and towns in it. Well, I mean, the floods, I think, uh, in a word, have been devastating, and it's it's been very hard to watch the results of, of constituents both with flooding in their homes and then, of course, uh, our farmland and the destruction of crops. And I was talking to a, a farmer this morning already who was just saying, you know, I don't, I don't know what's in the soil. I don't know what next year's crops are going to look like. So it's not just a question of the immediate impacts, but the future impacts. And I do think this is a a reminder that climate change is very, very real. Um, I, you know, grew up in Massachusetts and floods in the middle of the summer are generally not a thing. Um, but I think that we are going to have to figure out how to live with this new reality. Um, and we're going to have to figure out how to provide as much relief as possible going forward. Um, and so, you know, yesterday we had the governor making an announcement of, of a fund that's been established where people can donate uh, to our area farms for Food Northampton has also established a fund. There are cleanup crews there, although with everything, uh, with the continued rain, it's it's difficult to really clean up and move forward. And I, I think we're in a little bit of a holding pattern now because we are trying to tally the damage of, uh, to both our farms and to our infrastructure. And, and that is hard to do when that, that damage continues to be ongoing. Do you have some thoughts at this point what more the state can or should do to help our region? I, I think in the short term, it is really important that we, we provide relief. And so we've had conversations about uh, establishing money in uh, perhaps the supplemental budget, perhaps in a future budget um, that you know farmers can tap into. One of the things we heard very loud and clear from the farmers was they do not just want us to you know provide even a zero interest loan um, because that, that's really just them taking on more of the burden. And you know, farmers are, are critical. It's how we get food and how we eat and survive. So. I think that that's going to be important. We didn't get it done in the supplemental budget that passed the House last week. Um, and I think there are probably some good reasons for that. First of all, like I said, we still don't know the total of all of the damage, and, and the damage continues as uh, every time it rains. But uh, I do think that we may see it come through in the Senate or in another vehicle soon. Um, but then I think, you know, we also have to really talk about what does the future look like? Because we also can't get into a cycle where every year there's a catastrophic catastrophic event, excuse me, and we're just providing relief. We have to figure out how we prevent this moving forward. Um, and so looking at the dams in the state, um, making sure our infrastructure is up to par and working with our federal partners. When a recent report came out about dam structure throughout the United States and Massachusetts has some of the oldest and most um, decrepit, I guess you can say, dams in the country. So uh, it was very grateful for Governor Healy to actually bring that up in conversation. And I know that Senator Warren and Senator Markey and Congressman McGovern and Congressman Neal have all been out on the ground uh, trying to figure out ways that we can address this. Do you have or have you had conversations with farmers about the possibility of uh, growing different crops, uh, making changes in response to the catastrophic weather that we have experienced recently and more generally climate change? 
Yeah, I, I would say a couple things. I mean, I think farmers are, are sort of the front line of climate change. They see it happening the fastest because they're out in the fields every day, and so they notice what's happening. Even last summer, though, you know, we were hearing from farmers, and it wasn't catastrophic flooding, obviously, like this summer, but they were talking about excessive rains and moving some of their crops indoors into hoop houses. And obviously, if, you know, depending on how the crops are grown, flooding is still be a problem, but they were talking about ways that uh, were more weather-resistant, and that was really important. Um, so I think we're going to see more of that happen. I mean, obviously, we, we're having the flooding. We're also having extreme heat. Um, I'm not much of a gardener, but I do know that plants don't like a lot of water and a lot of sun. Um, so both of those things are going to be problematic moving forward. Uh, interestingly, we were at Grow Food Northampton the other day, and we were talking to a farmer there who is um, using his plot to work um, out if there are ways to grow crops that are both drought and flood resistant. It, it, he's kind of stumbled into, I think, probably the most perfect moment in history to be conducting that, experience, uh, that experiment now. So hopefully there will be answers. Um, we're going out with the commissioner to uh, a farm in Worthington, uh, to Sawyer Farm next week. And there they are also trying to pilot different types of farming protocols not just that academics say work, but that farmers say work. And so they're working with a variety of farms across the country, really, um, to test out different techniques that they will be able to use in the face of coming climate change. Does the state coming, have a... Coming and present, rather. <laughs> does the state have a... I'm sorry to have interrupted. Does the state have a role in that? I mean, I think that the state does, and that's why we're bringing the commissioner out there. There's not a lot of funding for that type of innovation, right? You have... You know, some research schools, UMass Amherst being a great example, where they are testing certain things, but you can't just test it in a laboratory or in a test farm. You actually need it to be implemented at a real farm, and you need buy-in from farmers. Farmers aren't going to invest in things unless they're sure they actually work. So I think that's what um, the work that Sawyer Farms doing is so important because they are really trying to get farmers to try new and innovative things. And, of course, they're you know helping with funding for these farms to do that across the country. So I think uh, the state will have a role, and we'll look forward to talking to the commissioner more about it. And we will look forward to it. This is Buzz Representative Sabadosa. I, I do want to point out that uh, what was announced in East Hampton when this um, Farm Resiliency Fund was announced by the governor and the lieutenant governor uh, during their visit, I just wanted to let folks know this is a collaboration between the United Way, um, the Community Foundation, um, even, even the, our Attorney General, uh, Andrea Campbell, has committed $10,000 to seed it. it. You may access this. You may donate to United Way CM, that's for Central Massachusetts, United Way CM, one word, dot org slash farm fund. None of us are thinking that these the enormity of the loss and the problem can be resolved just by private funds. But the need is so enormous right now. And the Daily Hampshire Gazette uh, does a really good job this morning outlining some of the food land uh, grants that have been uh, awarded already. And also, uh, once again, as you were saying, Representative, it is the topsoil that's getting washed away. It, it's There is a real permanence or at least long-term damage that this level of flooding has caused, and and people are scratching their head. I'm so glad to hear the Sawyer Farm is doing that. I did not know that in Cummington, um, to try to explore alternative ways to make up for the loss of the topsoil, which is so rich and we rely on for every harvest. And uh, we need answers, and we need state intervention. 
Representative. Well, I, I agree. And thank you for, for adding in the website. That was helpful. And I do, you know, it's true. We're not going to get through this with just private donations alone. And we're certainly hoping that the federal government is going to step in as well. But again, that's going to, it's going to require us understanding the full scope of the damages. And so NEMA has been on the ground in all of my communities. We had waterfalls in Goshen where there are not supposed to be waterfalls, road closures, I think, in every town. So once we figure that out, hopefully the federal government will be able to um, to assist. And then the state will also have a role in helping sh- make sure that our towns aren't left uncovered. There's always a, a piece that's supposed to be picked up by the municipal governments. And I know that you know some of these communities are very small where they suffered significant damage and they just don't have that in their budgets. We're going to have to leave it there. Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, thank you so very much for your time. Thanks for joining us. I know you have an incredibly busy schedule this morning, and we really appreciate your being with us. And thanks for your attention to this problem. Of course. Thank you so much for having me today. As our souls will leave this land most peacefully. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Our beloved local hero farms. Way too much rain, wiping out crops, wiping out entire farms. Our local hero farms matter too much to let them go down. We're all together on a rescue mission. Go to the Help Flooded Farms page at the CESA Local Hero website. Support a specific farm or donate to CESA's emergency farm fund. Local Hero Farms. Think what life would be like without them. Go to the CESA website, buylocalfood.org, to the Help Flooded Farms page, and kick in what you can. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. Do you have a garden? Do you love fresh vegetables? I bet you'll love Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. Where vegetables aren't a token afterthought, they're the reason you're there. Seven salads, nine vegetarian entrees, plus soups and the vegetable risotto cakes. A lot of the vegetables at Paul and Elizabeth's arrive from local farms. When vegetables arrive in Paul and Elizabeth's kitchen, they take center stage. Try the kale and sea vegetable salad. Try the tempura vegetable plate with sesame ginger dipping sauce. This is Artbeat with Donabel Cassis. Donabel has with her today a very special guest because we have a very special piece of art 
that we want you to know about. Donna Bell, the microphone's yours. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. Well, there are several pieces of art we want you to notice. So this weekend is the Springfield Jazz and Roots Festival. And while you're there, I hope you take a little time to check out some of the amazing murals all over the city. Two new murals and a couple restorations of some Nelson Stevens murals have been facilitated by a local organization called Commonwealth Murals. Director Britt Rue joins us today. Welcome, Britt. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Britt, over the last 20 years or more, you have led nonprofit organizations to create transformative opportunities for people to work together to improve their own communities. I love the name Commonwealth murals. Tell me about that. Well, um, it's spelled common space wealth. Uh, so it's obviously a reference to Massachusetts, but this idea that public art is our shared is a shared wealth in our community. Now, when you started organizing murals in Springfield, you have a mutual friend of ours, Rosemary Tracy Woods, who of course is a local art gallerist in Springfield arts advocate, she introduced you to the work of Nelson Stevens in Africobra. And you actually had a moment with one of his paintings of Dr. Martin Luther King, which changed everything. Can you tell us about that? Nelson Stevens was a genius of an artist and community organizer and taught at UMass for 30 years and lived in Springfield for much of that time. Uh, the first time I met Miss Woods, she told me, if you're gonna do mural work in Springfield, you have to know about the work of Nelson Stevens. And being busy and silly, I didn't follow her advice immediately, which I now do all the time. Um, <laughs> but uh, maybe a year later, I was sitting in the conference room at the uh, MLK Family Services Center, and I looked up and there was this amazing portrait of Dr. King on the wall. I had never seen anything like it. it blew my mind and it was so beautiful and it combined abstraction with realism so you immediately knew who he was but it wasn't like anything I'd ever seen before. I asked who had done it and uh, the person said that was done by Nelson Stevens. So that really is one of those amazing moments where a piece of art changes your life mm -hmm. because I went home, I finally did all my homework and learned about Nelson Stevens and he ran an incredible groundbreaking breaking mural program in Springfield in the 70s. Now, I, I think under his program, was it 30 murals throughout Over the city? Over 30. So Over 37 30. murals. He, uh, way before people were really using murals as a placemaking or placekeeping tools, he set a program where he brought art students from uh, Springfield and also from UMass into Springfield over the summer, and they painted 37 murals. Uh, four of those were designed by him, designed and painted by him. But mm -hmm. sadly, all but two of the murals from that program uh, were taken down or painted over or lost to time. Oh my gosh, but you now have led a restoration of a few of those murals. Is that yes. right? Yes. So the four that um, Mr. Stevens designed and painted himself were all gone. So we started working with him at the time he was living in Maryland uh, to restore two of his. And the plan was to work with a team of artists in Springfield 
for learning this technique we use for restoring the murals and to uh, mentor under him. Very sadly, he passed away two months before we were supposed to start work on the murals, but mm. we were able to kind of continue on in his name and in his honor and restored the tribute to black women and the wall of black music to their original neighborhood in Springfield, which is Mason Square. Could you, Britt, Britt, could you tell us how a mural is painted? Who does it? Who tells who to do what? Well, that's a big question, but I will tell you how we did this, the restoring, because we do a lot of our murals uh, this way. It's an indirect technique where instead of painting the mural on the wall, we turn the whole thing into giant paint by numbers and bring these uh, sheets of mural fabric out into the community. So hundreds of people help to paint them. They can go to schools, parks, libraries, wherever. You don't need any experience. Um, and then the artists do all the detail and finish work and then it gets glued up like permanent wallpaper. Um, now these are like five by five foot paint by number panels. So these are huge segments. Yeah. And uh, I saw some of the pictures of the community coming in and painting. And I love that, that they become a part of the making as well. They are equally invested in this project, um, which is one of the amazing things you do as a facilitator with these murals. Um, and I know Nelson, that I was getting this quote from Nelson uh, when he said in 1975, some call them murals, others large paintings, but all know them as force fields activated in the service of our liberation. And that is such a powerful statement about how art really transforms the community, the cityscape. You cannot, you cannot deny their presence uh, is moving. And so uh, you actually are very busy. I know you're down in North Carolina right now, but you recently facilitated two new murals in the city out of how many current ones now, right now? <laughs> Uh, I think we've done about 38 now wow. in Springfield since mm -hmm. 2019. Mm -hmm. um, and I will tell you about the two we did, but I also want to just say there is a mural going up in East Hampton right now that's using this technique. Um, the lead artist, Melissa Fandina, was one of the people we trained a couple years ago. She's a fabulous mm -hmm. artist. It's a mural celebrating Latina girls in education, and it's she's working like right now at 102 Cottage Street. So. If anyone wants to take a drive by and give them a shout out, it's beautiful. Tell us where mm -hmm. it is again, Just please. See it's at 102 Cottage Street in East Hampton. Thank you. Excellent. And so the, these other two murals, I swear, there should be sort of a mural tour. Uh, there's got to be. Is there a yeah. mural tour that you provide? You know, we used to do it, and we used this amazing vintage double-decker bus where everybody could sit on the top in the open air, which allowed you to see everything, and the yeah. bus has not been available to us. So we're oh. trying to figure out another alternative. But we do walking tours um, in a neighborhood for the murals that are there. So if an organization wants one, they just need to reach out to us, and we will happily set it up. I can talk about these murals all day long, every day. <laughs> <laughs> I could look at them all day long, but tell us about the these two recently that have been up starting this month, like you had a ribbon cutting and everything. Yes, we did two this last month. The one, the most recent one that was finished was um, done by Betsy Casanias, and it was funded in part by Blues to Green, which is the organization behind the Jazz Fest. And at the Jazz Fest, there'll be like a little video highlight so people want to see, but it celebrates the role of uh, women in particular being leaders 
for community-based activism around climate change. Uh, mm. It's on 470 Chestnut Street in Springfield. It's uh, fabulous. We work with Betsy before and we love her. Mm -hmm. This was done the same way too with the paint by numbers at last year's Jazz Fest, hundreds of people came to paint. So if you mm -hmm. painted last year, now you can go see what you did uh, at 470 Chestnut Street. <laughs> and quickly, the last one, the other one you just did? Is Be the Bridge and that's at 197 Plainfield Street in Springfield. It was um, a mural celebrating uh, Jafet Robles, who was a community organizer who was killed a few years ago and also other young people, actually people of all ages in the neighborhood who are seen as role models and who, uh, you know, both reach their hand out to help others, but know how to take the hands that are reached out to them uh, to, so that everybody's helping each other uh, rise to their best selves. Britt Rue of Commonwealth Murals, thank you so much for what you do in the community. It is to our benefit and for the benefit of all. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. And thank you, Donna Bell Cassis. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. Drums keep pounding a rhythm to the brain. Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And we have been um, deluged here in New England. Recently, the rains are going to come again tonight. Heavy rains. Our farms are underwater. Our roadways are collapsing. In Texas, there's record-setting heat that is so oppressive. In Arizona, I think that we now have 20 straight days in excess of something ridiculous, 110 degrees. We just keep talking about climate, and we're so in need of people who do something about climate, and we are very lucky to have with us this morning Attorney Maya Van Rossum, who has made it a, um, made a career out of finding creative processes, as she says, for doing something about climate change. Maya, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So I guess a good place to start is just talk about your organization, which you founded, the Green Amendments for the Generations, and tell us what it is and why it is. So my Green Amendments for the Generations organization and national movement is actually an outgrowth of my work as the leader of a four-state organization called the Delaware Riverkeeper Network. 
where um, over a decade ago, through litigation, we were able to use constitutional language in the Pennsylvania Bill of Rights section of the state constitution to defeat a very pro-fracking law that was actually written by the industry but passed by the legislature and signed by the governor. Well, let me, I'm I'm famous for my dumb questions, so let me just uh, rewind the tape a little bit. We all think of the Constitution as the U.S. Constitution. I think most of us know that there are state constitutions. And so what is the function of a state constitution in terms of the changes you seek? So um, as, as you said, there are both state constitutions and federal constitutions, and every state has a constitution. And what the state constitution does is it, is it um, oversees, essentially, and guides all of the action taken by state government officials, whether it's the legislator, the governor, administrative agencies, municipalities even. And the federal constitution, well, that applies to all federal governmental individuals and entities like the Congress and the president and federal Um, administrative agencies like the Environmental Protection um, Agency. Under environmental law, there is a tremendous level of power and obligation for protecting the environment that lies in the hands of state government, as well as a tremendous level of power that lies in the hands of the federal government. And so if we want to lift up environmental rights, which is what, what my Green Amendments movement does and what a Green Amendment does, and ensure that they are given enforceable constitutional recognition and protection, we, we need to ensure that we enshrine those environmental rights, what I call green amendments, in both the state constitution and then also the federal constitution, because as a result, we are obliging government officials at all levels of government to ensure they are giving environmental rights the same highest constitutional standing as other fundamental rights we hold dear, like the right to free speech and freedom of religion. There, too, there's sort of divided power, right? The state has power and the federal government has power. And in order to ensure that all government officials are doing right by by those fundamental rights, we want to make sure that we have a constitutional entitlement in both state and federal constitutions. And so the same would apply to the environment, and that's what my Green Amendment movement is about, is ensuring that same highest constitutional recognition and protection in all state constitutions across our nation, and then also ultimately we'll, we'll seek and secure one for the federal constitution. How long ago did you uh, begin uh, uh, trying to induce states to pass green amendments to their constitutions? So after I achieved the, the, the um, legal victory against that, that pro-industry, pro-fracking law that I had just mentioned, that was back in December of 2013, I reflected on how it was possible that we were able to defeat a law of this kind, right? Normally when a law is passed by the legislature and signed by the governor, people don't really have too many options to challenge it, right? They can protest, they can try to elect better people to office, but fundamentally the law remains in place unless you can convince your legislators to do something different. Um, But in Pennsylvania, because we had this constitutional right of the people to pure water, clean air, and a healthy environment, we were able to challenge and defeat this pro-fracking legislation. And so at the time, I reflected on the power of that, and I identified all the critical elements of the Pennsylvania constitutional entitlement that um, gave it such strength. And then I looked at 
every constitution across our nation. And I found that at that time, back in at that point, it was 2014, that there was only one other state that lifted up environmental rights. So they were given the same highest constitutional recognition, protection and standing as the other fundamental rights we hold dear, like the right to free speech and freedom of religion. And I found that that was Montana. And at, at and I determined at that point, being an environmental activist and an environmental attorney for decades, I had experienced all the ways our current system of environmental protection laws fundamentally fail us. And through this pro-fracking um, litigation, had experienced how having constitutional empowerment can change the playing field when it comes to environmental protection. And so I decided then in 2014 that we needed this kind of constitutional protection in every state constitution across our nation. So I called it a Green Amendment, right? I identified my Green Amendment criteria, and I began on my Green Amendment journey. And Maya Van Rossum, right now, last month, in a case called Held versus State Montana, I think it's the second case of this nature where, in this case, 16 Montana youth filed suit against the state of Montana to protect their equal rights to a healthy environment and to a future life to the dignity and freedom come that comes with the planet not being sick. And they based it on the declaration of rights contained in the constitution of the state of Montana. And I'm just going to read from section three under the declaration of rights, which is part two of their constitution, inalienable rights. All persons are born free and have certain inalienable rights, including the right to a clean and healthful environment and the rights of pursuing life basic necessities, enjoying defending life and liberty, acquiring property, and it talks about safety and health and happiness. It talks about protecting the environment. Um, How important is that? So that's really critically important. So first off, a couple of things in just in the framing of the question. We actually have had many cases in Pennsylvania and Montana, and now the state of New York, where we just got a Green Amendment passed, about two years ago, we have had many cases where the Green Amendment has been used to secure critical environmental protections for communities that were otherwise suffering from water pollution or air pollution or toxic contamination and more. And Suc- so we successfully have was used successfully. Successfully, yes. Just like my that pro fracking. Um, litigation that I mentioned that I had back in 2013. There are lots of different contexts where Green Amendments, um, this kind of highest constitutional standing has made a difference. But the Held case is the first time where um, there has been an argument brought forth based on the climate and that the right to a safe climate is part of the constitutional right to a clean and healthful environment. And by the same token, you know, when you say there have been lots of lawsuits, there have been a number of lawsuits um, talking about the climate and government obligations to protect the climate, but they have not been based on this Green Amendment language. And so in, in large part, those cases actually have not been able to progress past a motion to dismiss. They got dismissed very early on. But what I always anticipated and what we are experiencing right now in the state of Montana is when this kind of 
climate litigation is brought based on constitutional Green Amendment language, that is when we will see success. And so the Montana case has already um, defeated two motions to dismiss. It went to trial, uh, as you said, a number of weeks ago. Very successful case was put on, and we are now anticipating a decision from the judge. And I am pretty confident the plain language of the Montana Constitution, the the Declaration of Rights section that says people have a right to a clean and healthful environment, um, that that coupled with the testimony and the expert witnesses that were put forth during the course of the trial should result in a successful decision that the youth plaintiffs have a right to a safe climate, that government officials are failing to fulfill their obligation to protect that right, and that government behavior in the state of Montana needs to change. That's right. And and the, the heart of the claim is a complaint that Montana is promoting the extraction and the burning of fossil fuels, despite the availability of renewable energy sources that are alternatives to fossil fuels bill. So my And that they're being I just want to say and what's really important is that there's actually legislation that prohibits Right. The government has passed a law that prohibits Montana um, agency officials from considering the climate crisis in their decision making. And so that legislative prohibition raises this serious constitutional question. And and one other along with the perpetuation of fossil fuels. Thank you for adding that. I did fail to say that. I also fail to say that. And the youth who are making these complaints are harmed as a result. I know Bill has a question for you, Attorney Von Rossum. So, so my Von Rossum, I have a couple questions for you. First, um, can you tell us which other which states have a Green Amendment? Yes, the three states that have a Green Amendment are Pennsylvania, Montana, and the state of New York. Now, there are a lot of states that talk about the environment, even mention environmental rights. But they don't meet the essential criteria that that actually constitutionally and legally place environmental rights on par with those other fundamental rights we hold dear, like speech, like religion, like private property rights. And so as a result, they don't get that highest legal protection that we see when when we are recognizing and protecting something as a fundamental mental right and an alienable human right, given that highest constitutional I have a question about your national strategy. You are looking for states to pass constitutional amendments that will give a constitutional amendment to amend their constitution to create a fundamental right to a healthy environment. What I'd like to know is whether that strategy of seeking to amend a state constitution is puts you in a more difficult situation than trying to pass a state law that would protect the environment because as we know passing constitutional amendments is a much more much more onerous task than uh, trying to pass a law or even having a state referendum so yes it is harder to get a constitutional amendment passed although at the state level we see constitutional amendments all the time they actually happen with quite regularity and so they're very accessible to get um, to secure a constitutional amendment at the state level versus at the federal level, which is an entirely different dynamic and process. So um, going state by state by state, 
we're likely to accomplish Green Amendment protections in the near term. And at the same time, we're laying the foundation necessary to ultimately get a federal Green Amendment. Now, that 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 um, that um, let's see, higher hurdle for securing a state Green Amendment um, does make it a little bit more difficult to get there. Um, to get over that finish line. But what it also means is that once you've secured that constitutional entitlement of the people to things like pure water, healthy air, healthy soils, a safe climate, and healthy environment, you are unlikely to ever lose it. So number one, it is worth the effort because once you've secured it, you've gotten it, right? And, And it's unlikely to ever be rolled back. But number two, the, the truth is we have lots of environmental legislation already, and yet we, are, we experience a tremendous level of environmental harms and problems, right? People um, being exposed to so much pollution in the water or in the air or in the soils or in the environment that it's having devastating consequences for their lives. Under this current system of laws, environmental racism, unfortunately, is alive and well with communities of color and indigenous communities and low-income communities being disproportionately impacted by pollution, degradation, and environmental harm. And that's because by its very nature, the legislative process has a real ceiling on what it can accomplish. First and foremost, you can't pass a piece of legislation, a single piece of legislation that will cover every environmental issue Um, every environmental harm and be able to conceive of every circumstance that might come into place or into play with regards to that water pollution or that air pollution or that development um, scenario. So that's why we have lots of legislation. But um, you still have this fundamental problem that legislation can't do it all. It can't cover the whole array of issues. And as well, legislation suffers the inherent fundamental problems created by our political process. All legislation is done by negotiation, right? Political negotiation. And there's a lot of bartering and politicking um, and shoulder rubbing. And there's a lot greater access to people in positions of political power by industry, right? Those who are actually going to be regulated by that legislation. And so consequently, legislation often when it comes to the environment, is often passed at sort of that, that level of the lowest common denominator. What level of pollution prevention or, or regulation can we achieve and get this piece of legislation passed? Not what level of pollution or pollution prevention, environmental protection do our people need to have quality lives? And that's what a constitutional amendment does, right? The constitutional right of the people to a clean, safe, and healthy environment, however it's written for each particular state, provides that overarching guidance that guides how all existing environmental legislation must be interpreted. It all now must be interpreted in service to this constitutional right of the people. Which when is why, in the law, which is why, Maya Van Rossum, before we take a break, I want you to tell people how to get in touch with the Green Amendments for, the, for Generations, how to get in touch with you and how to support your work if they wish to do so. We'll take a two-minute break right after you tell us that. How they can get in touch? Yes. 
Yes, go to www.forthegenerations, F-O-R, forthegenerations.org. You'll find lots of information, and you'll find a direct pathway to get to me, and I'll be happy to work with you to advance the Green Amendment in, in your community and your state. We are going to continue our conversation about Green Amendments with Attorney Maya Van Rossum right after this. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed and get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. This is Cassie Mori, Vice President and Residential Lending Officer at Greenfield Savings Bank. What's better than getting an incredible rate on a mortgage with our Buy in July Mortgage Special? Getting interest rate protection too. That's right. Take advantage of our Buy in July Special now, and if rates drop in the future, you can ask us to have your interest rate reduced without having to refinance. Just call a loan officer for full terms and conditions. If you're in the market for a new home, don't delay because to qualify for our Buy in July Mortgage Special, your application must be received with an executed offer to purchase by July 31st, 2023, and must close before September 29th, 2023. Apply online at greenfieldsavings.com or call one of our loan officers at 413-775-8200. Greenfield Savings Bank's Buy in July Special. Offer good on mortgages for the purchase of owner-occupied one to four family properties or condominiums. Offer is subject to change or cancellation at any time. See bank for complete details about Buy in July Mortgage Special and the interest rate protection. Member FDIC, member DIF, equal housing lender, greenfieldsavings.com. Do you struggle with occasional nerve aches in your hands or feet? Try Nervive Nerve Relief from the world's number one nerve care company. Nervive tablets contain alpha-lipoic acid to relieve nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort, plus B-complex vitamins to support healthy nerve function as you age. Live life with less nerve discomfort with Nervive Nerve Relief. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And try Nervive Pain Relieving Cream to block nerve pain signals at the source. Use as directed. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back talking with Attorney Maya Van Rossum. We are uh, talking about the Green Amendments for the Generations, her organization, which she founded in order to promote the enactment of amendments to state constitutions to protect our environment and to prevent the kind of damage we're seeing these days. And when we were um, be on the break, uh, Bill and I were asking you about other states that have, you told us that Pennsylvania, New York, and Montana um, have green amendments. They have passed green amendments. But in what other states, uh, starting with Massachusetts, tell us the status of Massachusetts, are amendments percolating? 
So we do not have a Green Amendment proposal advancing in the state of Massachusetts because nobody in Massachusetts has gotten in touch with me to say, hey, how do we make it happen here for me to partner up with? There is low, way low down in the Massachusetts Constitution, a recognition that a right to clean air and water and the natural, scenic, historic and aesthetic qualities of the environment is an important public purpose and that the legislature should legislate in its protection, but that does not create a fundamental right to a clean, safe, and healthy environment. That just recognizes that legislators should legislate for the environment, whether they do it well or they do it badly, they need to do it. Um, but in, so anybody who wants to advance it in Massachusetts, get in touch at, through forthegenerations.org. But we do have Green Amendment proposals advancing, advancing in over 15 other states, literally from coast to coast and the Hawaiian Islands, Connecticut, Delaware, New Jersey, Florida, Texas, New Mexico, Nevada, Washington, Iowa, Maine, so many states where Green Amendment proposals have been put forth and people are actively engaged in seeking this most powerful transformative protection for the environment. I'd like to ask whether or not the passage of a Green Amendment or the potential to pass in a Green, green Amendment gets pushback from the argument if you pass a constitutional amendment, you end up with years of litigation trying to figure out how it will be applied and what it really me means. Is that an argument you have to contend with? That certainly is an argument that's been made, and it's an argument uh, that is fundamentally flawed and for which I have a good answer. Um, number one, the only litigation people should be concerned about is frivolous litigation, right, baseless litigation that isn't really advancing an important public um, purpose or good for, for the environment and for communities. There is zero frivolous litigation that has been advanced in any of the three Green Amendment states. The only cases that have been brought forth are cases of serious and significant public concern and environmental concern. They're all meaningful, and they've all had really important outcomes in understanding what it means to have an environmental right. That being said, when you look at the actual number of cases that make it into the courts in the three Green Amendment states where they exist, it's less than 10 cases a year. So we don't see people abusing this language to try to advance some sort of inappropriate um, environmental protections. We really do see it being used in a serious, meaningful way, just like we see our other fundamental rights being protected in a serious and meaningful way and not being frivolously abused. Well, um, I, we are running out of time, Maya Van Rossum. Could you tell people once again, tell them slowly, they might be in their car, how do people get in touch with you? How do they support your organization or how do they in their own state, in this case, Massachusetts, uh, promote um, the adoption or foster an environment in which they could uh, possibly get adoption of a Green Amendment? So the organization is Green Amendment for the Generations. The website is forthegenerations.org, just taking half of the name, forthegenerations.org. If you look up Green Amendment, um, just type those words in. You'll find me. You'll find our website. We're, you know, really the only organization working to advance this movement at the state level or the national level. Um, and if you want to make it happen in Massachusetts or in your state, first off, if you go to the website, you can find all the active states where a Green Amendment movement is happening. If it's not happening where you are, go to forthegenerations.org. There's a form to fill out. Fill it out, and I will be probably the person that gets back in touch with you to say, hey, let's, let's talk about partnering up 
working together, developing the language and the strategies so we can advance a Green Amendment in Massachusetts or any other state where it's, it's yet to start advancing. Maya Van Rossum, thank you so much for you doing what you're doing for us and for future generations. Maya Van Rossum. Thank you for what you're doing, and I appreciate the opportunity. Okay. We're going to be right back. We're going to be talking with Representative Adam Smith, longtime member of Congress, about our health care system right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Governor Maura Haley was in Western Mass yesterday, including a stop at Mountain View Farm in East Hampton to announce the launch of a new fund to help farmers following the devastating flooding. We wanted to find a way to come together, provide direct aid to our farmers. The Massachusetts Farm Resilience Fund is designed to help farms facing financial losses across the state. All money that comes to the fund will be distributed rapidly by the United Way through a deliberate selection process. Senator Joe Comerford was president in East Hampton at Mountain View Farm yesterday when the Healy Driscoll administration made their announcement. The Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources estimates at least 75 farms have been hurt by flooding, with about 2,000 acres in crop losses at a minimum value of $15 million. That number will likely climb as more damage is assessed and the longer-term impact sets in. Musanti Beach is back open after Northampton Parks and Rec closed it last week as a result of flooding. Flooding damaged swimming area ropes and buoys, but it's now all fixed. Officials in Northampton are still warning residents that the water level is high. Police are investigating after a rollover crash in Palmer that left one person injured. The single motor vehicle accident occurred last night on I-90 westbound. Crews were able to remove the driver who was trapped in the vehicle and was transported to a local hospital. No word yet on the extent of injuries at this time. Mostly cloudy today, chance for showers in the morning, showers and thunderstorms likely this afternoon. Flooding and damaging winds are a possibility today, a high of 76 to 80. Evening showers and thunderstorms and partial clearing overnight, a low of 60 to 66. Sun cloud mixed tomorrow, a high of 80 to 84, mid-80s, mostly sunny on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Every day, financial ads claiming to be different from the competition. Are they? I'm Francis Rayum, the money doctor, and I'm about to make a bold statement. I believe the thing to focus on isn't their uniqueness, it's yours. No one has the same financial situation or needs as you, and no one can help us help you better than you. But the truth is, when it comes to managing money, most of us are not as successful as we'd like to be. No matter how focused we are, it's almost impossible to separate emotion, and being in a relationship can further compound the issue. That's why I developed Hug Your Money. Financial coaching, coupled with online software and tools to empower you to manage money wisely. We guide you every step of the way to resolve immediate issues and plan for your financial future with modeling scenarios. So whether it's debt, budget, retirement planning, or a financial crisis, having a Hug Coach in your corner is like having a new best financial friend. Hug Your Money is as unique as you are. In fact, it's patented. Visit HugYourMoney.com. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate. On the one hand, I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. 
Learn Spanish, learn French, learn Italian or German. Learn a language with the International Language Institute. Beginner, intermediate and advanced conversation classes. Speaking the language with others who are learning. ILI is a PDP provider for the state of Massachusetts. Plus, earn continuing education units. Learn Spanish, French, German, Italian. A six-week summer class meets twice a week starting July 18th. Sign up online. One of the world's top language schools is right here. The International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. This is um, a segment I have been looking forward to. Um, too, because uh, we are going to be talking to somebody who has become um, probably not in a way that he hoped that he would become truly an expert on our healthcare system, on what it can do and what it often fails to do. He is Representative Adam Smith of the House of Representatives of our Congress. He is in his 27th year as a member of Congress. He has served as the chair of the House Armed Services Committee and he has offered us a candid mem- memoir about his years-long struggle with pain and with anxiety. And uh, he is joining us from, I think, from Washington State. Is that right, yes. Representative? Beautiful city of Bellevue, Washington. Yes. Bellevue, Washington, a beautiful city. I've been there and enjoyed it. So thank you so much for joining us. You have written a memoir. What is the name of the memoir? name of the memoir is Lost and Broken, My Journey Back from Chronic Pain and Crippling Anxiety. Lost and Broken is a pretty powerful image. Why that title? Well, that's that's the way I, I, I felt um, as I was battling through this. And I, you know, I mean, it started a long time ago in terms of various physical and mental challenges that I had, but they were all manageable until 2013 when I started having uncontrollable anxiety. And I always like to emphasize anxiety is different than stress. Anxiety is constant. Um, it doesn't necessarily have an easily identifiable cause. You just have this constant feeling of existential fear. You know, I couldn't sleep, struggled to eat, you know, and just constantly had my heart racing, my body tense. Um, and I struggled to get through that. And then a year after that, my my pain, which I had in a variety of different places, got to the point where it too was debilitating, which led to three hip surgeries, um, none of which seemed to solve the problem. And by 2016, I was I was I was lost. <laughs> There's no other way to describe it. So the book talks about how I got to that point, and then crucially, how I found my way out. How I eventually did find um, healthcare providers that gave me the the right diagnosis and the right treatment uh, to help me get better. I was lost. How could you be functioning at the highest levels of our government as a member of the House of Representatives, as a chair of the Armed Services Committee, and feel lost? Yeah, to be, I wasn't actually the chair at that point. I was the ranking member. I became the chair in 2019, just as I was beginning to come out of this. There was there was some overlap, but look, I mean, that's a that's sort of a positive thing about this. The capacity of the human body to both endure and to heal itself, I think, is far greater than most people realize, and that's sort of what I did. Um, I endured, and I had a lot of help. Um, you know, certainly my staff, my family, and I was not able to do as much as I had done before, but I found a way to keep going. Now, 2016 was the moment I was, you know, two months past my third hip surgery. 
and I wasn't getting better. I hadn't been back to Congress at that point since the end, well, the start of February. So I'd missed a bunch of votes. The markup for the defense bill was coming and I was lying in my bed thinking, I don't think I can go downstairs and get a sandwich, much less fly all the way across the country, um, you know, and do it. But I decided I had to, so I did. Um, and then I worked my way through it from there. It, it was a, a huge struggle without question. Representative Adam Smith, this, this is Bill Newman. I, I would like you to tell us two things about your journey. I, I think people are pretty sympathetic, very sympathetic to physical injury. Not so much with mental health issues. And I'm wondering how transparent you were with your constituents and your colleagues with regard to your mental health struggles and what kind of, well, what, what was the, what, what kind of reception was there for you? Yeah, I, I was not transparent. In fact, that's one of the things I'd point out. And actually, I had an attack of anxiety back in 2005. Um, that one lasted four or five months. I saw a psychiatrist who didn't help me at all. I took a little uh, benzodiazepine, clonazepam, to help me get through it and just sort of went away. And in both times, in 2005 and 2013, I was convinced that if people found out about what I was dealing with, I would lose my job that no one would want a member of Congress who, as I put it, was losing his marbles. Um, and so, yes, I, I hid that. And I also, I point out in the book that, you know, I mentioned that my chronic pain came in 2014. And I vividly remember thinking when my hip started to hurt and it got worse and worse and worse, now at least I have something socially acceptable wrong with me. Okay. So, you know, I can tell people about it. But yes, there certainly was, and to some extent still is, I think a feeling amongst many people that you, if you're having mental struggles, that's something you better not tell people um, because it could jeopardize your job, it could jeopardize your relationships. Um, and that is a stigma that we need to remove to help people be willing to seek help and treatment to get better. That it is so, uh, I'm old enough to remember 1972 when George McGovern was running for president. He was nom nominated by the Democratic Party in the primaries, and he chose Thomas Eagleton, I think was the name of a senator. Senator Eagleton from Missouri, I believe. That's right. And yeah. it, when it was disclosed that he had consulted with a psychiatrist. Well, he had also had electroshock treatment, as I recall. Yeah. Which yeah. sounds serious, sounds serious now and was serious then and certainly not understood nearly as well then as right. it is now. So I would love to hear more of your thoughts about the stigma of, about why someone who's suffering in the way that you describe from anxiety is afraid to say, I'm suffering from anxiety. I think there's there's three reasons for it. Now, number one, um, and this is something also I lay out in the book, part of my challenge, because I had a bout of depression when I was 25 years old. I didn't really know what it was. I didn't tell anybody. And I just, I got over it, okay? Um, and then I mentioned the two bouts of anxiety that, that happened that ultimately I couldn't get over and had to try to figure out how to deal with. But in my mind, when I thought of mental health, and keep in mind, I'm a public policymaker, so I've, I had talked about these issues. I was never on the health care committee or anything like that, but certainly worked on the issues. But in my mind, mental health was, there was a bright line. Either you were crazy or you were normal. 
Okay. I don't think I would have expressed it quite that way. That's what I thought about. I said, well, I'm not crazy. I don't need to worry about mental health. Whatever's going on with me is just, you know, there's just stress or, you know, I'm feeling down, whatever. So number one, there's not an understanding that mental health is not unlike physical health in the sense that you need to do things um, for preventative maintenance. I mean, we, we see doctors for physicals. We talk about exercise and diet and all these things that are going to help us physically. But there's not this understanding that mental health needs to be worked on to the same extent. Now, this is changing just, just in the last few years. I think a lot more people are talking about this publicly. So that's number one. Number two is what I mentioned before, is the feeling that that people, you know, you can't trust somebody who's who's got a, got a mental issue. Um, which is wrong. Um, we all have challenges of one kind or another. Physical challenges we can work around and mental challenges we can work around, but that stigma exists. And then the third thing that I had was, okay, if you have a physical problem, there's all kinds of things that you can do for it. You go to a physical therapist and they work it out and they teach you how to strengthen your muscles and you know how to stretch them. Or maybe if you've got a knee problem, you need to get a surgery. I, I had surgery on my right knee when I was 16 years old. But when it comes to mental health, I was like, okay, so I'm feeling this way. What's anybody going to do about it? I remember when I went and saw my first psychiatrist back in 2005, a, medical, a Navy doctor out of Bethesda Naval Medical Center. Um, I was like, what's this guy going to say to me? Okay, I mean, I have this anxiety that I can't explain. What's he going to say to me that's going to change the way I think about things? And so there's a perception also that if you have mental health problems, what, what are you going to do about them exactly? In fact, there is treatment. And I think, again, all three of those things, I think, are improving, but we still have a long way to go. Well, Congressman Smith, I would like to know what the reception has been to your book, Lost and Broken, My Journey Back from Chronic Pain and Crippling Anxiety. What do your colleagues in Congress have to say about all this? It's been really positive and really gratifying. And I'll tell you, the best thing that anyone said to me was one of my colleagues um, about a week ago came up to me on the floor and said he'd read my book and he'd been dealing with anxiety. And having read my book, he finally said, yeah, I, I should do something about this. And he said it was the best week of his life because he finally went and talked to someone and it, it was helping him. But ha reading my book made him realize that this is far more common and it's something that you really should go do something about. Um, and that, that was incredibly gratifying. So I, I think the, the reception has been positive and I think there is a change going on in terms of receptivity uh, to mental health issues and the need to identify them and treat them. So Representative Adam Smith was writing the book in and of itself, therapeutic in some ways? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I originally did. I originally wrote this not to publish it, just to sort of sum up what I had learned. And to do, I, I like to use the phrase from my armed services work, an after action report, as they say in the military. Because I am an excessively logical person. And throughout this entire process, I kept notes and I kept thinking about what's going on, what's working, what's not working. I tried this, I tried that. And I wanted when when I finally got through and got to a better place, fresh in my mind to write it down. And yes, it was incredibly, it was therapeutic. I learned a lot from it. Um, it was April of 2019 when I finally got off of all of the medications that I'd been on, started to get better and really was able to think more, more clearly about it. And while it was clear in my mind, I wanted to get it down, you know, so it could hopefully help me as I wrote it, I realized this is a story that a lot of people um, could probably relate to. And we want to continue talking about the fact that so many people can relate to this story. 
unfortunately can relate to this story. We're going to continue our conversation with Representative Adam Smith about his book, his memoir, Lost and Broken, My Journey Back from Chronic Pain and Crippling Anxiety. We'll be right back. Not just anybody Help You know I need someone Help When I was younger So much younger than today This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. There are days where you just want to hang a sign on the door. Gone fishing. But you're not going to get a line in the water today. So you go to Paul and Elizabeth's, which may be the next best thing. Order the fish and chips. It's tempura style fish. The batter's so light and airy. The chips are fresh cut in Paul and Elizabeth's kitchen. Have you tried Paul and Elizabeth's Cajun sampler? Shrimp, scallops, and cod with a spicy etouffee sauce. This week's Shock Tuesday is Tavern on the Hill. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Tavern on the Hill releases gift certificates for their restaurant on Mount Tom. Tavern on the Hill, barbecue done slow over native oak, brisket, ribs, and pulled pork, plus Tavern signature salmon, pumpkin tortillaki, and big deck with a view of the Berkshire foothills. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Tavern on the Hill on Mount Tom, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. As the weather gets warmer, I know many of you are thinking about your summer workout schedule. And if you're like me, it's all about finding work, life, and workout balance, which is why when you sign up at Fitness Together, you'll put a schedule together with your personal trainer that actually works for you, is stress-free, and will help you stay fit, healthy, and balanced. Visit us online today at fitnesstogether.com, Amherst, or Northampton, and sign up for your free consultation. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Washington Congressman Adam Smith, longtime member of the House of Representatives, was the chair, I assume now the ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee, and he has a new book that we think you want to know about, the title of which is Lost and Broken, My Journey Back from Chronic Pain and Crippling Anxiety. Congressman Adam Smith, we were talking some just before the break about how your colleagues in Congress have responded to you based on your memoir or in response to your memoir and the revelations in it. I'm wondering whether there has been a political consequence to you in your district. Well, not at this point. And, and, and look, I think at this point that there is a real hunger out there to have people be honest about what they're facing. And I think people have responded very positively to that aspect of it. Um, that, you know, as a public figure, I still have a hard time thinking of myself in that way, even after 27 years, but I am, um, to, to be really willing to have an honest and open conversation. I think most people have viewed it as helpful, um, in the sense that, 
it will now enable more people to talk about it and also have more focus on what we've talked a little bit about, and that is the lack of access to these services and the sort of bias against against mental health services in this country. And a lot of a lot of other people are doing this. I mean, just in the last three or four years, we've seen a number of public figures talk more openly, certainly Senator Fetterman, but others as well. So I think this is changing, frankly, just in the time between when I wrote the book and when it got published. What is interesting here, there's there's this dual assault that uh, you are writing about. One is, um, and a really important one, is the stigma of mental health problems. But the other is, in your case, and I think in terms of Senator Fetterman, his, his depression, he says, was caused by a stroke. Yours was caused by physical ailments you couldn't get to the bottom of. So your book also is talking about uh, the delivery of medical services, of diagnostic services, and uh, how are we doing as a country in terms of our healthcare system? Sure. Well, a couple of things, but just to be clear, my, my anxiety was not caused by my physical pain, and I don't believe my physical pain was caused by my anxiety. Uh, they had two separate causes. Um, I had a very problematic childhood. I was adopted, um, a whole bunch of stuff that I get into in the book that I never properly dealt with and that made me subject to that anxiety. Physically, I had knee surgery when I was a kid. A bone died in my knee, um, and I never properly rehabbed it. So my body got out of whack, basically. I favored one side over the other for 30 years, and it caused a lot of my muscles to shut down and a lot of other bad things to happen. And I had impinged hips, complicated little thing. I wasn't very flexible because my the ball in my socket of my hip joint didn't form properly. That's a fairly common problem that you know, may not ever cause anything, but those two things sort of came together. And the one thing I really want to emphasize, we access to healthcare is incredibly important. Eliminating the stigma is incredibly important, but within the healthcare system itself, you know, the problem solving approach isn't what it should be because too many healthcare providers really don't do a very good job of listening to and communicating with their patients. The human body and mind are incredibly complex. Somebody walks in with anxiety or depression or pain, it could be a million different things. How do you get to the right diagnosis and the right treatment requires a very thoughtful collaborative process, which too often is absent in, in our healthcare system. And that's really what I ran in. I ran into that more than I ran into not being able to access it, as I point out. And it sounds incredible that I went to 100 different people, but you have to understand, I went to multiple physical therapists, massage, a couple of podiatrists, internists, and my hips had a whole bunch of osteopaths, psychiatrists, psychologists, naturopaths. You know, I was basically, somebody out there has got to have an answer to this. Um, but it was more a matter of getting to people who could actually communicate clearly and work with me to sort through the problem. Con Congressman, <clears throat> excuse me, I I'd like to go back for a moment, if we might, uh, to something you said, which was you didn't write this book initially for the purpose of publishing it. You just wrote it for yourself. And I'd be interested to know what made you decide to publish it. Um, I think the biggest thing that made me decide to publish it was the idea that it was something that could be helpful to other people. Um, and I really want to emphasize everybody's story is different, okay? I don't have any particular magic answers in my book, but the process that I went through of 
how I got to the point where I was experiencing the pain and anxiety that I was experiencing, and then how I tried to figure it out, I think could be a pretty useful roadmap for people to at least have have some idea of where to go and how to approach those issues. And then also, you know, like I said earlier, if I talk about this, it makes it easier for other people to talk about it, um, as it does with a lot of other people. So those were the two biggest reasons I published. I'm be, being honest, I mean, the third, but I think it's a good story. I think it's interesting. I think people would enjoy reading it. So, Congressman, I really appreciate your book. I really appreciate that you've made all this public. I appreciate the transparency at this point. I'm wondering if we could spend a couple minutes with you and ask about something else, which is your, sure, pre your, pres your present job in the House of Representatives and what in God's name is happening there and what, if anything, do you think the House of Representatives will be able to accomplish in these last two years of President Biden's first term? Yeah. Well, what's happening is, you know, a small group of far right Republicans have a disproportionate amount of control over the process. And that's really what it is. I think the defense bill, as the ranking member of the Armed Services Committee um, and the top Democrat for the last 12 years, I've worked on this a lot. And the interesting thing is Mike Rogers is the chairman, Republican from Alabama, conservative by any measure. He and I work really well together and we produced a product out of committee that passed 58 to 1. And as he admitted, and I agree, if we had put that bill on the floor for a vote, it would have gotten 360, maybe 370 votes, all right? But the Freedom Caucus hijacked that to push their narrow right-wing agenda, which in this case was anti-woman, anti-trans, anti-diversity. Which are now right? part of the defense bill as it stands in front of the Congress, which seems to be a poison pill, which may not allow the appropriate defense appropriations bill to pass. How is Congress going to get out of that mess? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I, don't even get me. I, I will get started in a second on the appropriations process. The appropriations process is even worse. But on our bill and the authorizing bill for the Defense Committee, that's what they did. They hijacked it and they put all of the stuff in there. And, and understand, as I said, it is about ignorance and bigotry. They are targeting LGBTQ, diverse people of color, and women's access to reproductive health care. That is their mission, all right, to push that very narrow right-wing agenda. The appropriations process, they, they have put all kinds of policy writers in there. And I guess one of the best examples of this is what happened in the transportation, the, the T-HUD appropriations bill, transportation, housing, urban development which has a number of different congressionally directed spending earmarks um, in it. They had an amendment that pulled out only three of all of those earmarks. These were the three earmarks that went to organizations that were associated with the LGBTQ community. Now, keep in mind, these programs were for housing projects, all right, you know, but because they were associated with gay people, the Republicans pulled them out of the bill to be specifically bigoted against gay people. And they are doing that in every single one of the appropriations bills, turning it into a right-wing anti-woke agenda. I don't see how we pass appropriations bills. Now, again, I really wanna emphasize, if we put a defense bill, if we put appropriations bills out there, we'd have the votes. But Kevin McCarthy's given in to the far right wing. It is shameful. It is just shameful and it is so important that people remain uh, current on that and express themselves. Meanwhile, Adam Smith, you have written this incredible book, this memoir, Lost and Broken, My Journey Back from Chronic Pain and Crippling Anxiety. 
It's available at your independent bookstore. I want to thank you so much for the lessons of the book and for joining us today. Well, thank you for the chance. It's always good to see you and always good to have the opportunity. And thanks for what you do in Congress, Representative. Meanwhile, listeners, thank you so much for joining us today on Talk to Talk. Like the representative, let's all walk the walk. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. Using WIC is easier than ever. Now you can use the WIC card instead of checks for your food purchases. WIC is a free nutrition program that helps working families stretch their food budget and make healthy choices. WIC helps families learn to shop for nutritious foods and offers resources like online nutrition education and an app to make shopping easier. Visit us online at mass.gov WIC to find out if you qualify. This message is brought to you by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health's WIC Nutrition Program. WHMP North.